I'm Jeff Cohen. When you hear the first few words from my next guest, Michael Doniger, you won't be surprised to find out he's a voiceover artist, but that's not where his journey began. In fact, a near-death experience almost derailed his dreams and Jewish journey. Michael is here today to share his story, so let's get started. Michael, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And even from those first few words you said, I can just tell that you have the perfect kind of deep voice that works so well as a voiceover artist, so I'm not surprised you found your way to that field. It was sort of God sort of gave me that gift. I I don't really take a lot of um, pride. I mean, I take pride in it, but it's not like me, me, me. It's just something that came up from above. I was just thinking if as a teenager, when you kind of got your adult voice, was anybody like in those early years saying, wow, you have a voice for either being voiceover or on the radio? Was that already known at that young age? Um, Nobody really said much, but I always felt a pull toward it. In high school, I used to do acting, and I always liked doing imitations. My father and my brother and I and my sister, we'd go around the table and we'd imitate things during the family dinner. And I know as we let your story unfold, we'll, we'll get to the point of how you got into that field, but let's start a little earlier in your life and go all the way back to the beginning. Even before we get to your story, can you tell me a little bit about your parents' background? Yeah, my father was born in Cedarhurst, Long Island, to a big family. His father came over from a place called Suwak, Poland, which is near the Lithuanian-Polish border. My great-grandfather was a Moskil, had a Talmud Torah there, who taught Greek and Latin. And he was part of the Bilu movement to emigrate to Eretz Yisrael in the 1890s. He was actually a card-carrying member. But like most people of this generation, they decided, they went to uh, the Golden of Medina they couldn't hack Palestine or Eretz Yisrael. It was just pretty hard you know, compared to what we have today. Today we live in luxury. And your mother's side of the family? She, they were from a place near Davinsk, if you know Mayor Simcha of Davinsk. They moved to Cincinnati, and they then moved to West Virginia. And how did your parents meet, and what was their religious background at the time that they came together? My grandfather, who I never knew, died in 1951. He was a Cohen also. I'm a Cohen also. And he was unfortunately Mahale Shabbat, and they wouldn't give him a aliyah at the local Orthodox shul in Cedarhurst, so he decided, I'm out of here and I'm going to go reform. So my dad grew up pretty assimilated, and my mother uh, was the only Jewish family in town in West Virginia, a place called the War of West Virginia. So they came from a very little background. I mean, they're very culturally Jewish, you know, like all their friends were all Jews. They all they had the Saturday night bridge clubs where they'd all have scotch, and my parents always joked that the hand that they played was always the worst hand because they were always last in the bridge club. But they are very they are very connected with Jews. Our generation doesn't always have, even from people don't have that certain togetherness that that generation did, even if they weren't religious. I kind of envy them for that. Where do you come into the picture? Where are you born and raised? I was born in San Francisco, and I was raised in Berkeley, California, born 1960. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the 70s, 60s, 70s. So you talked about your father shifting over to Reform Judaism. Is that how you would characterize Judaism within your home when you were growing up? Yeah, but we were Reformed Jews, but I think Israel was really our religion. We loved Zionism. We re- loved Israel. My mother was really, her and her group, Hadassah group, built Hadassah Hospital in 1963. They were the ones who built it. They, she worked day and night for them. She, my mother would have been like a CEO if it wasn't even those days, if women didn't you know, have the glass ceiling. or She would have been probably a, a real powerhouse in her own way. So how did it rub off on you, this idea that your your family clearly is involved in Jewish causes, the connection to Israel? How was that rubbing off on you as a child? 
because my mother especially, not my father so much, but my mother taught me to try to love Jews and try to accept Jews and to have a certain uh, peoplehood. You know, we used to march for Soviet jewelry in the 70s when I was a kid. You know, we were in pro-Israel rallies now and then, and I spent the most time with her, and she gave me this sort of love of Eretz Israel. You know, she was a real Zionist, the old-time Zionist. Today, you really don't find them so much anymore. And in terms of your education, it seems like from what you're describing, you were a kid who would have been in public school, not a yeshiva-type system. So were you in public school? Did you go to Hebrew school on the side? Did it culminate in a bar mitzvah? I did go to what I called reform school. Basically, at that time, my religion was sports. But um, Jewishly, I wouldn't say it was so important to me then. I mean, Israel is important, but it wasn't, didn't really, there was nothing really concrete about it. We used to go, you know, twice a year and have Pesach seders and Hanukkah lighting and things like that. But it wasn't like I learned Hebrew or that, you know, at 12 years old, I want to become religious or, beca- or I want to go to Israel. It was pretty dormant the most of those years. And so as we continue the story, and I think about the later teen years, that's a time when people often transition from how their parents are raising them and what their parents are telling them about religion to starting to form your own opinions. So take us inside the late high school into college years, what you're thinking about in terms of where you want to go, what you want to study, and what role you think religion is going to play in your life during that part of your life. Well, I, to be honest with you, I didn't think that religion was going to play any role in my life. Those were like the disco years, and all the guys wanted to go to discos and meet women. You know, that was kind of like my one of my big things. I had like a Jewish consciousness, but it mostly was from anti-Semitic remarks. It was more of a negative Jewish consciousness, not a positive one. Like when somebody would call you, oh, they Jewed me down or something, it would make me feel Jewish, but unfortunately it didn't engender like positive feelings. And also Bay Area has like lots of cults, so they're always trying to get snared by the, like the Hare Kishkas and uh, other cults, Est and Scientology, and you name it, Hinduism, Buddhism, everything but Judaism. But I didn't go for that because I never trusted cults. And I saw how they were brainwashed, and I said, I, I don't want any part of it. But I saw lots of people get pulled into it. I wasn't a hippie. Everybody thinks, wow, you're out in California, Berkeley. Aren't you a hippie? Didn't you go to university? First of all, I didn't want to go to university. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Now I realize I should have been in radio and TV. But instead, I, as one of my professors called me, he called me an intellectual tramp. I went to four junior colleges. I loved learning. I even dropped out of high school for two years. I uh, dropped out of high school. I went to wash dishes. I dug ditches. Took the high, high school equivalency uh, California exam, and I passed it. I got up two grades, and I went into junior college because I, I liked learning, but I didn't like education. But even with that self-taught mindset, did you end up ultimately getting a college degree in a particular field? Yes, I got one in uh, geography, actually, geography with a minor in uh, remote sensing and uh, geomorphology. I studied a lot of earth sciences, and I was always fascinated by nature. I always liked nature, hiking, that kind of thing. I always liked going out, looking at rocks. I always liked uh, Hashem's world. I thought it was, like, amazing. So I'm picturing a guy who has this geography degree who likes to explore and now is faced with what am I going to do for the rest of my life? So what what happens post-college? How does your life unfold from that point? I didn't actually, I started college when I was 26. And what I did is I rode across the country when I was 20, 21 in America. I rode from Portland, Oregon to New Haven, Connecticut. It took about two and a half months. It was, it was an amazing experience, you know, seeing America and uh, without cell phones in those days, you know, I used to write letters home and things like that or more than once in a while make a phone call. 
I guess I wanted to do is to just get out of myself, get out of the mindset that I was in. But the inner journey is more important than the outer journey. You can always go somewhere, but yourself always follows you. It was an interesting experience. And then I decided, uh, my mother kind of pushed me, and I decided I'll go to Israel. So I went through Europe. I, I rode my bike from Madrid, Spain to Athens, Greece, during the first Lebanon war. That was really interesting. So why did your mom want you to go to Israel? Had you, had you been there at all when you were growing up? Would this have been your first time going? No, which is, was my first time, which is kind of ironic because my parents were so Israel folk, at least my mom was. I, I thought she would send me when I was 17, like these USY trips or something. No, she didn't do it. For whatever reason, my parents were more not the typical Jewish mother and father. They're pretty laid back. They didn't, uh, you know, they let me sort of, uh, I guess I would say flounder a little bit, you know, try to find my way. So you have this plan to bicycle through Europe, and the last stop is going to be Israel. What, what are you hoping to get out of your time in Israel? Like, what are you looking forward to experiencing when you get there? Finding myself, the proverbial gap year, finding who I will. What does it mean to be a Jew? I didn't really think about it that much. I just thought, you know, it's, it's a pretty cool place to be. And uh, I, have re I had relatives there living in Herzliya Pituach. My mother's brother was there. who lived there for like 23 years. I know, I thought it would be an interesting place to go and to, to see like what it's all about. Because I, I imagined, I saw Israel on the maps, but I never really saw it in, in person and to meet the people. So I thought maybe that would be, uh, that Israel would be like to, to help me find myself. So take us inside the time when, when you're in Israel, what actually happens? You did a good job of setting the stage for what you're hoping to get out of the trip. So what actually happens while you're there? How long do you stay and what are some of the experiences you have? I was there about a year and a half and the first half year was horrible horrible. I was on a kibbutz, on several of them, and we grew up with the mitos of the kibbutznik, you know, Uzi, you know, Uzi with a Kova temple, and he's driving a tractor, and he's got a, and he's like fearless and blonde-haired. And when I really met the kibbutznikim, and this was, you should know, this was just after Sabra Shatila, when the whole country was going through some sort of crisis of faith, and especially on the left, you know, they said Israel's not a light to the nation anymore, and we've lost our way. It was like a real existential crisis. For the, for the people of Israel, I was in the epicenter of this left-wing sort of moderate left-wing kibbutz, and they didn't, a lot of them didn't like the country, and I was shocked. I was really disappointed. And there's a lot of non-Jewish volunteers, and some of them were anti-Semitic. And I was next to this Bedouin village, and it was very, I was interesting there also. I used to beat the Bedouins there in the, in the Negev. And I was going through a personal crisis, because if this is Israel, if this is what my mother and we grew up on, then what, what am I doing here? Like, I could just go back to America and, and whatever, flounder there. What am I doing here? So it was really, I was, a, I was trying to learn Hebrew, and I was the worst in the class. And I had all these people from Europe who already speak five languages already. So it was like, academically, scholastically, I wasn't doing very good either. I was like, really? And I had roommates who were like, uh, really hard to get along with. It was a nightmare. Now, you said you were there ultimately for a year and a half, and everything that you just described, this is really more in that first six months that you said was a really terrible start to your time. So what, what changed in the second half of the time you were in Israel that kind of changed your outlook on your experience there? I was in a place called, I don't know if you heard of Kibbutz Mishmar Emek. And that was, and you don't have to understand, in those days, the Kibbutzim, they were still sort of communistic and still socialistic. So every May Day, they used to raise the flag, the red flag above the, on the water tower. And I was very friendly with a couple of old-time kibbutzniks and kibbutznikim. And one of them, she said to me, Michael, 
God forbid that you should be religious, but we want you here because every Jew needs to live in Israel. She wasn't from, but in the 40s, she used to, when the, the survivors would sneak to the British blockade, she used to change clothes with them. I mean, she was a real old-time Zionist, and she loved Israel, and I really got along with her really well. And she said to me, you must go to Livnot Libanot in Svat, which is a program for, I don't know if you've heard of it, maybe you have, by Oren Balzer. You should live and be well. And uh, when I go up there, I don't know how he, how he found out about her. When I went up there, you know, he gave me the uh, test, and, you know, I got really nervous because, you know, in college and all this test. And he said, what do you know? And I said, well, nothing. He says, you're in. You're in. The only time I got in, I didn't know anything. I mean, literally didn't know that much about uh, Yiddishkeit, Judaism. That program, that, that three months changed my whole life and set me on the amazing trajectory that I am today. Which is a great way to lead into how your story is going to start to turn. I want to just zoom in on this point you just made, that when you were going to this program, there was this thought about falling in love with Israel, but not necessarily about becoming religious. So where was your head at? as you went into this program, was it to connect even more to Judaism, to Israel, to just have a different experience from what you had before? And then what actually happened during your time there? Yeah, it was sort of, I'd already seen the secular Zionism. And I said, if this is it, why continue? So I decided I'm going to try to figure out what it means to be a Jew, religious Jew. I mean, I was really trying to figure out where, where I stood spiritually, where I, where I stood intellectually, and how the sources could, uh, you know, speak to me, or would they speak to me? I wasn't sure at all. I remember the first class, it was, we lived, it was so primitive. We had these, the Saknut, the Jewish agency, would give us these, like, noodles, and I, I was slept literally in alcove on, on a, like, a rusty bed, but I didn't care. I rode my bicycle up there, I remember, from the kibbutz. I, was, I rode, I had my bicycle everywhere, so I used to ride every, everywhere. So, I uh, I remember the first shir I learned was about the Maharal, about uh, Migdal Bavel, and how they used to throw a rock down. You know, every time a brick would fall, if somebody fall, they wouldn't care. But every time a brick fell down, they would cry. And I said, wow, this is Judaism? It's so deep. I mean, I didn't. they never taught me this in Sunday school. They never taught me this stuff. They never taught me, the, like, the Midrashim, you know, or, or any of this stuff. They never taught me about morals and ethics so, so much, you know, at least in a, in a Jewish way. And I said, wow, I got really, I got very excited. Plus, we worked half a day, and I was a construction worker in America. So I was a natural. They saw when the, some of the old-timers saw me, like, weld a trowel they, and the mixed cement. They knew I had its experience. They liked me that way because I was willing to work hard. So they, uh, and I enjoyed it. It was a great, great program. So as you're starting to get interested in the program, did you understand anything about Orthodox Judaism? I'm thinking back to the way you described your childhood didn't seem like you were coming across Orthodox Jews or being exposed to it in any way. So I could see you getting excited by these classes. Did you understand it was kind of a road to a different way you could be living your life? Spiritually, yes. Intellectually, I still had a lot of doubts, you know, like evolution. We were growing up, evolution was considered the gold standard. And if you believed in the biblical version of creation, you were considered somehow a, a primitive person. So I still had, it wasn't like, uh, you know, I was going to put on film the next day and all that stuff. It took me a long time to integrate these things. And I said to myself, I'm not going to accept something that I really can't understand. It's sort of a quandary because you really can't, a lot of things in Judaism, like when you shake a lulaf, right? You're shaking this, like these palm fronds. It's really weird. Somebody sees that. But I decided I'm just going to go on my own pace. I'm going to try to figure out, every time I come to a roadblock, I'm just going to try to figure out, try to learn a little bit more. 
and try to, as they say, Kierkegaard says, make that leap of faith. So I made little leaps of faith. I didn't make tons of leaps. I made little little ones because I'm a believer in the slow but steady. And you mentioned being in Israel for a year and a half. So once that time period comes to an end, where are you holding religiously? And then what happens next? Do you decide to stay? Do you then go back to the United States? What's the next move for you? I was in Turkey for a while. I had a friend of mine went to Turkey. It was really very interesting. We took buses, and the thing about Turks you have to understand is that <laughs> it could be the whole bus could be empty, and we'd sit right next to you, and they they practiced their word, their English on you. They had knew like five words, <laughs> and so we. So I remember it was like really funny. These Turkish guys everywhere, even in restaurants, they'd come sitting right next to you because they're you know the Middle Eastern type of their uh, idea of space. And their idea of body language, they really want to come up, up next to you. And America is like very, you know, we're still kind of quite uh, more distant. But that was, that was interesting. And then I hitchhiked through Europe. I went to England and then I took a plane back. And I had massive from, this is like 1984. This is like in the fall of 84. I had a massive culture shock until I came back to Israel in 1990 when I was making Aliyah. For six years, I had a really hard time readjusting to American life. Very hard time. It seems like you were progressing towards taking on a lot of different elements of Orthodox life. So in, in those six years, you were able to continue that while you're in the United States? Or is it on the side for a little bit while you're back? Gam vagam, as they say in Hebrew, also and also. Yeah, it was very... Um, I'll tell you what the problem was, was I went back to Berkeley. And Berkeley is very liberal. And, they, and also the religious Jews are very liberal. So... I was having a hard time integrating, getting back to my religiosity because they would tell me a lot of things that I guess today I would say like fira. But on the other hand, I want to be cool. I want to be in with, with the group because uh, there's not so many Jews. In, well, there's Jews in Berkeley, but people who are religiously knowledgeable, there's not so many. So a lot of these people did know something. So I was always having a hard time. Like I was trying to be fr religious from, but on the other hand, I would go back and forth. And that was really, that was really hard. Plus, I wasn't, I was trying to find myself. And I was trying to find some job, all these dead-end jobs, and I was, wasn't working for a while. I decided, uh, whatever, so that was a couple of years, and then I decided to go to college in 1986 to San Francisco State University, the most anti-Semitic university in America. We are number one. We are number one. And I, whatever, I decided I was in industrial design, and I flunked out of three finals. 1986, and I, I thought about dropping out of school, and then I went to Bank of America, where I was a debt collector for a while. I'd call people up, and I would try to get the letter. But I was progressing slowly. I mean, it's starting to anyway in my religious journey. But it was, uh, like I said, California, San Francisco is, is good for other religions, but when it comes to religious Judaism, it's really, really hard. So do you then come to the conclusion that if you're going to continue to grow and find your place, you want to go back to Israel, and if you arrive at that decision, you're now back in the area where your parents are, so are they for or against this move? Well, it's interesting you should say that, because it was Rosh Hashanah, and I was, and this girl that uh, I liked, it was second day Yentuf, and we were going to somebody's house, and she said to me, you know, Michael, you don't belong in America. You, you think you should go to Israel. I said, are you nuts? Israel? That's for other people, not for me, even though I had a kind of a background there. And then I saw this guy. I used to work for a newspaper, the Daily California, and I used to be like a cub reporter. I used to write for them. And, and I saw one of the guys who was Jewish, and he was just like a regular day. He was dressed in regular, and I had my keep on and, you know, sits it and all that stuff. And I looked at him, looked at me, and I said, you know what? I said to her, you're right. I should go to Israel. I'm not doing anything here. I'm not really doing anything important. 
So uh, I started my LIA process in the fall of 1989, and that was when the uh, Saddam Hussein started invading Kuwait, sort of that area at that time. And uh, it was not an easy time. You know, people in Israel were getting gas masks and, you know, the scuds, and people didn't know anything was going on. It was like really a, a really hard time. And I decided I'm going to make Aliyah. So I made Aliyah January 3rd, 1991, two weeks before the Gulf War. I was in Tel Aviv. You know, my mother said to me at the airport, she had tears in her eyes, Michael, do you, don't you think you could, like, postpone your aliyah? I said to her, because I was young, dumb, and single, you know, really, if you have a family, you have to think three or four times. I said, you know, Mom, I'd rather die a physical death over there than a spiritual death over here. I literally told her that, and that wasn't such a great thing to say. I realized that was kind of stupid, but uh, whatever. I kissed her goodbye, and I said, I took my bike, I had a bike box. I always have bikes with me, and I had, like, a little suitcase, and I made Aliyah. I made Aliyah, and Shlomo Karabakh was on the plane with me <laughs> that, that time. Yeah, it was pretty good. He said, holy brother, holy brother, here's my card. You know, everybody was holy brother. He gave me a hug from L.A. We flew all the way to Tel Aviv. It was like such a weird time, funny time. I was there, the first missile attacks. I remember the sealed rooms. I remember a few days before, it was, I was in South Tel Aviv. If you know Tel Aviv at all, it's kind of a sleazy area, the bus station. So this guy, I'm not kidding you, tapes were uh, these um, cello tape was at a premium. I mean, literally, and so he had this coat on. He opened this coat, and he had all these cello tape, which he'd sell for like 10 times the price for sealing up the rooms. I was like, it was like such a, and I was just landing there, and I was just trying to figure out, I was going to live in Tel Aviv. I was going to try to get a job. I was going to get Ulpan. And then the uh, the war hit, and I and I remember I would sleep in Yerushalayim and come back to Tel Aviv during the day and sleep in Yerushalayim at night in Harnof, which I currently reside in. And with my friend, we used to go down to uh, help deaf-blind people because he was he was a signer. So we'd go during the sirens, we'd take our bicycles, and we would see these deaf-blind people in Tel Aviv. We'd try to, uh, you know, he would sign, and I would be kind of go along with the ride to warn them about the uh, the uh, sirens and things like that. And so one of the things I remember from that time period was that the war didn't actually last super long. So you, you get through this time period, and now you have to think about what your life is going to be post-war when things calm down. So what do you end up doing career-wise, and do you then find that special someone in Israel? I worked for the Jerusalem Post as a graphic designer. I used to lay out the local newspapers. I did that for about a year and a half part-time when I was learning yeshiva. And also I was like a reporter cleaning houses and just doing all sorts of other things. And um, I had to move to Catamon, part of the Catamon single scene, and I was really, ugh, I couldn't stand that. So I used to go to Haredi houses, like in the, I called the Bible Belt, down in Saratskin. I used to, whatever, I was trying to get married then. I was in heaven because compared to California, when I come to Israel, it's like I'm a single guy. It was really an amazing experience being a hot commodity, you know, sort of a normal religious guy who wanted to get married, and there are a lot more women than men, but uh, it's not easy finding that significant other. It's not, not easy at all. I had a lot of dating, weird dating experiences, but uh, yeah, Baruch Hashem, I'm married now 30 years and uh, four kids. Well, so take us inside that courtship. What was the background of the woman you ultimately connected with and started a life with compared to yours? Her name was Golda Smilchensky, and um, she's non-Orthodox, I want to give a piece of advice to anybody who's listening here. If you want to find your significant other, throw away your list. Throw away your list. I threw away my list. I had a kind of a list, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to be try to be open to anybody and everybody. 
and uh, maybe it'll work. And I didn't think I would marry my wife. My wife and I are like different planets. She's from East Coast sort of establishment New York, and I was like a West Coast balchuva. And it was definitely uh, a mixed marriage, as I would say. But uh, yeah, she's been good 30 years already. We met by a person who didn't know either of us. The guy didn't know me, didn't really know her, but since I'm a Jewish man, she's a Jewish woman, hey, let's get together, right? Maybe something will come of it. So after four dates, which was like over two months, we got engaged at Yad Vashem. So we're going out of Yad Vashem, and, and I told her, if I would marry somebody, you would be like the kind of girl that I would marry. And so she said, are we engaged? And I said, yes, and then she walked to my light pole. <laughs> And she tried calling her parents, but it was Shabbos there, so she, she couldn't call them. So it was like, yeah. So that was. We got married finally on uh, J- July 29th, Yud Aleph Av, in um, 1993. Your marriage is at 30 years and counting. So even though you came from very different backgrounds, clearly something has worked to have that kind of longevity. But I also want to go to something that I said in the introduction was that it seems like you had some kind of medical situation that almost derailed everything that seemed to be like on the up and up for you. So can you take us inside that experience and, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing from that time of your life? Yeah, no, not a problem. If anybody gets any inspiration from it, uh, I would be very excited. Um, I was a gardener for 22 years in Yushalayim. I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, I saw a lot of gardens. And after a while, I was getting older, I was getting more tired. I couldn't stand going to work, like most people in the world. You know, maybe not yourself, but I couldn't stand it. On Shabbos, I'd sleep really long because, you know, it's, the work was really tired. I remember I speak in the heat and sometimes the cold and the rain. I'd work in all kinds of weather with all kinds of people. And I said, I said, God, Hashem, I need a change in my life. I will need you to change me. So he said, okay, I'll change you. So I got this... <laughs> it was funny. I got all these bumps on my... All of a sudden, I started getting all these bumps on my face, and I started getting, like, these lesions on my tongue. So I was getting worse and worse, and it was February 22nd, and I decided I was near Misgav Ladakh, and I remember I went in there, and I said, this is not normal. So I go in there, and there's Dr. Russian Dr. Ludmila. She says to me, you need to go immediately to Hadassah Ain Karim tomorrow. You have a very bad autoimmune disease. So I was there about five months, four or five months. And you ever heard this expression? Adversity is when a man, or a woman, I should say, whatever, adversity is a man meets himself. And I really met myself there uh, for this disease and afterwards. And I have to admit, these last seven years, this was seven years ago, I, f- I feel like a whole different person. I'm doing what I want to do now, and I really feel uplifted. I feel more observant. I feel I'm learning more. I feel the life is not a given. It's not a given. I could have died. In fact, without steroids, I've always told the joke that too bad I'm not like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, because he got lots of money with you know, whatever, and, and these weightlifters tend to like steroids. All I got was like a bad back, and I had a lot of stuff. I had a lot of problems. I had blood clots, bad back. I broke, like, I had five fractures. I was, I could barely get up. I was hurting. I couldn't go to sleep at night. It was hard on my family. They had a really hard time. I was pretty hard to live with. The steroids made me crazy. I mean, it sounds like just like an unbelievably difficult ordeal to go through when you have this kind of health scare. And we all have these moments where we realize we're taking our health for granted until something like this happens and you can no longer ignore how your body is feeling. You also said that it kind of helped you meet yourself again or maybe meet a different version of yourself. So what what did you experience during those years where you couldn't be as active, someone who was a landscaper out in the fields and doing all that kind of work? 
What were you experiencing for yourself personally that helped you think about your life and yourself in a different way? Maybe, like, I would say it just made me appreciate life more. It made me more religious. It made me think about family, about relationships, how we are really finite and we're going to die sometimes. So it gave me sort of a push to try to grow, try to get out of our comfort zone, try to challenge ourselves, try to help other people, which is a big thing which I try to do. Try to look for deeper meaning in everything. Try not to get angry. It hasn't been easy, but... um, Thank God I have a great life. I have no regrets. I would not change it for the world. So I also introduced you as a voiceover artist. So was that something that was on your bucket list? Whereas you kind of came out of the medical situation a little bit, you thought, now or never, I'm going to go after this? Yeah, I decided uh, in 2017 that I'm going to start doing it. And if I known then what I know now, I don't know if I would have done it. Because it's a soul, you have to be really tough internally. You have to get used to being criticized. To be a voiceover person, you need to be tough. You need to be constantly looking for work, which is fine because I was a, a freelance guy anyway. And I market myself, you know, through LinkedIn and other places. So I don't mind that. But just something about the microphone just grabs me. It's like I feel like muksamize, like it's just magical. You know, I love hearing my voice because I guess I'm kind of a, I even love public speaking. Public, I've, I've spoken several times to uh, yeshivot and to, uh, I spoke in my shul in Hebrew, believe it or not, and they actually kind of liked it. I even spoke once in Russian for Sheva Brochas. <laughs> Good thing was like about two minutes because after two minutes, that would exhaust my, vocab- my Russian vocabulary. And can you share a couple of examples of the kind of voiceover work that you've done? Is it for commercials? Is it for shows? Maybe you can share a couple of things you've done. Mostly nonprofits. I did stuff for Yad Vashem. I did stuff for Kakal. I did things for certain cybersecurity places. I did trailers for a Haredi radio station. Haredi radio station. Haredio. You know, whatever. It's kind of hammy, but they liked it. Mostly, though, nonprofits, especially like Kolels that are going broke and Yeshivot that are going broke. And today, the war, I did a couple for the, you know, soldiers and things like that. I was just going to ask you that, given the fact that we're doing this interview post-October 7th, you're based in Israel. How has your life changed since then? Is there anything you want to share about what you're experiencing on the ground in Israel during this tough time? Um, well, you know, I remember we were lining up to give blood, and it was, like, so amazing, the, the Achdud here. Haredi guys were giving water to these, like, Hiloni women who were, like, in skimpy clothes, and they were, and everybody was, like, it was, like, such a, it was such amazing feeling of, of unity after the summer that we went through with judicial reform. I, the only thing I really change is now I'm part of the Shomer Harnof. We, I go around in a car. I always joke that it's Purim costume. I have like a little hat that says police on it, and I have a vest and my shocker, and I have a car with a little light on it, and I go around patrolling the uh, mean streets of Harnof. Not so mean, but you know what I mean. You get it. So I do that, and also I picked vegetables. I went there. I really loved it because actually my gardening experience, not that agriculture and gardening is similar or same, but it was just nice to be out in the fields and meeting people, and also, uh, whatever, I bought cigarettes for the Chayalim, because they're going through like water. Tonight, I'm going to try to give more things to the Chayalim after I get off this, and uh, whatever, try to daven and um, say Tehillim and uh, try to help wherever I can, you know. I, I wish I could get out, but I'm, I'm 63. They wouldn't even let me do the Civil Guard here, because it's a 62-year out, so I'm 63, so whatever. Yeah, we feel pretty unsettled. We don't know what's going to happen. We're a little bit on edge, or maybe a lot on edge, but we just try to do our routine. That's the most important thing is to be happy. It's not to give Hamas a victory, 
to keep your morale up. That's the that's what we uh, that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to keep our morale up as best we can. Yeah, it's a tough time for everybody and people in America, Europe, Israel. We're all experiencing it in our own ways. Uh, I do want to ask you one additional question just before we wrap the interview. You talked about you know when you got sick, you became kind of like a bucket list guy. So it makes me think there's got to be some things that are on your list you want to do going forward as you think about the next few years of your life. So what's on that bucket list for you? You know, I don't really have such a big bucket list. I don't really feel like I have to go to the Alps or I have to travel around the world. I think the biggest bucket list would be for me to improve myself. Like I'm doing um, Noach, uh, Rabbi Noach Weinberg's The 48 Ways. It's in the Mishnah. For me, my bucket list is to try to every day get out of my own skin and try to challenge myself a little bit more, to try to expand my, I guess, consciousness and I wouldn't say circle of influence and try to do good for people and try to get out of my own selfishness. So this is normally the time of the interview where I would say something like, Michael, thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. But given that you are the voiceover artist, I think you instead of me should take us out of this interview. And what would you say for our listeners as we wrap up? I would say that I hope that you get a lot of likes and that you really rise to the top and you can monetize yourself. I also had a podcast for a little bit, a Shemitah podcast. So I hope that you get lots of money and I hope that you are so able to use this money in a spiritual, in a, in a good gosh mystic, in a good spiritual way. That's my bracha to you. I mean, I hope your podcast really like hits number three or it's number two <laughs> in, you know, Apple or, uh, you know, Spotify. I mean, I mean, I mean, Michael, thank you for joining me today so much on Saturday to Shabbos. Really appreciate it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.